Thanks for downloading this show from PC1. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. The following program is a podcast1.com production. I'm so glad you're with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so that you can keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our web address. You're looking for deals? ClarkDeals.com. And if you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. Coming up in 20 minutes in today's Clark Rageous Moment, a major car company is doing something completely un-American. I'm going to fill you in. And later this hour, speaking of transportation, let's talk about the future of space tourism. I'm not ready to blast into space, but maybe you are. Right now, I want to talk about you blasting into a new career. I have had a number of questions from people asking me about going to what are known as boot camps for computer training or coding. And these boot camps tend to last three months. The tuition tends to be right about ten grand, and so you're paying nearly $1,000 a week for the course. And so people will call and say, you know, is this something I should be looking at? Is this a way to a new career for me? And this is one I've really been thinking through. The reality is, if you go to one of these computer training programs that are specifically targeted to get you into a company uh, where you were able to help a company put stuff into computer code, you, if you do well in one of these courses, you're going to find work if it's a legit school. And it's a lot of money to pay to get through a three-month course. But this does seem to be a way to a new career path. The best of these programs allow almost nobody in who applies because they don't want people filling seats in the classrooms that can't do the work, that don't have the aptitude to adapt to computer training. And we were talking about this in our staff meeting, and a couple of people who work on Clark.com we're very knowledgeable about these programs and talking about uh, where they'd worked for people, where they hadn't worked for people. And the truth is, is that any program that says you're going to come in, you're going to be there three months, and you're going to be qualified to go get a job working, uh, doing c- coding, and they take anybody who comes in the door that is a place you run away from. Because you want to go to a place that, let's call it the the 10-10-10 rule. I'm going to do my own, it's not really accurate to call it that, but expect that only roughly 10% of people will be accepted. It's going to cost you 10 grand, and it'll be 10 weeks or so. How's about that? Am I ready to run for office? But 
with these programs, if you think you have an aptitude for computers and you're looking for a fresh start, there is a resource I can send you to where you can check out a school where you live or near where you live, and you will have roughly, according to their research, a two-thirds chance that if you get accepted to a legit program that you will be working in the field shortly after completing the program. So it's not a sure thing, but a two-thirds chance for most technical training programs is a high ratio and a good number. If you check out switchup.org, switchup.org, you'll be able to see the best coding boot camps. They're usually called code schools or boot, uh, code boot camps. And see who, based on their database, who is doing the best job. Read the reviews that people have for them. And maybe there's a new career for you. In the past, when people have asked me about it, and asked me about spending ten to $12,000 on one of these programs, I have said, check to see if a local state-supported trade or technical school has a coding program because it would be a fraction of the cost. And that advice still remains true. But these coding schools are for-profit schools. That's why the tuition is roughly $1,000 a week. And the reason that they are successful versus so many for-profit schools that really just rip off the students, the reason they're successful, the legit ones, is because they are highly restricting admissions and culling the herd, if you will, to people who they believe, based on the testing they do, that will be successful. Now, why am I talking about one particular kind of job in one industry? Because if you look at the list of the jobs that are going to be most in demand for the years ahead, they are generally in the STEM area, various forms of engineering and various forms of computing. This, of all the jobs that are on the list that are growing the fastest, the one that has the least amount of training required for you to get into the industry is for you to learn how to code. So it's not a silver bullet, because remember, very few people are going to make the cut to get into a legit school. And then of those, roughly only two and three are going to get a job. But compared to if you feel like you're spinning your wheels in life, that's a good start. Rosa is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Rosa. Hi. How are you? Great. Thank you, Rosa. How can I be of service to you? Um, well, um, I have a question about reverse mortgages. Uh, my brother and I inherited a two-family house in the Boston area, completely paid off. I think my parents paid it off a couple, maybe 10 years ago at least. And we're entertaining the idea of a reverse mortgage as part of our retirement plan. And we just wanted your opinion on that. That is a fascinating scenario that no one has ever asked me. So generally, a reverse mortgage, the eligibility begins 
at age 62 or 65. Are okay. you and your brother in that category yet? No, he, he'll be 62 in about seven years, but I'll only be 55. Okay, so you've got some time before this is a potential viable option. Right. But right. Under, under the lending guidelines, having a duplex where you have tenants on one side and the two of you in the other, or do you each take one side of the duplex? No, he lives in the uh, downstairs apartment. I live in the upstairs apartment. Oh. There's no uh, tenants all right. at all. So I would I would suspect, and again, it would depend on the lending guidelines that would be in effect um, seven years from now, that may right. work. And right. the thing, though, with reverse mortgages is that I always look at them as a last option, not a middle one or a first one. And the reason is, and again, this is under today's rules, the fees right. that you and your brother would have to pay are gigantic to originate a reverse mortgage. The fees are astronomical compared to a traditional loan. So it is an option that you look at when you have a lack of other options to provide income that each of you would need to live monthly. Right. So it's too soon in your uh, lifespans to be looking at this. And, you know, it's going to completely depend on how the rules play out. And you and your brother, under today's rules, would both have to go to financial counseling Uh to make sure that this is an appropriate step and strategy for you. And then you'd be able, if the rules, again, permit, to take out the reverse mortgage, which essentially sends you a check every month instead of the mortgage company receiving a check from you each month. Right. Okay. So the principal source for the loans is through the federal government. Mm -hmm. So they have their underwriting standards and guidelines that determine whether or not you would qualify again at that time. What is it that's making you and your brother think of a reverse mortgage at a point that um, you're pretty far from normal retirement age? Um, well, neither one of us have children, and we, we don't have spouses. And um, to be honest with you, I'd rather enjoy life before you know I'm wearing Depends. I mean, I want to travel now. I don't want to wait until I'm in my 70s. You know what I mean? And just really enjoy All right, life. then I'll tell you the alternative is to do a home equity line of credit. Okay. Home equity line of credit would be much cheaper to set up and would have more flexibility. You don't have to worry about the federal rules. Uh, You can do that now. You don't have to wait till uh, he's 62, and you would have to service the interest on it for typically a 10-year period. And then after 10 years, that's when principal that you would have borrowed would have to start being paid back but it's a much more efficient way to access money than to do so through a reverse mortgage right i mean it's not something we're thinking about for you know like i said maybe seven to ten years but okay within that time frame yeah yeah so again at that time depending on your financial circumstances it still might be a better idea to do a home equity line of credit 
than it would be to do a reverse mortgage. Adam is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Adam. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. You want to uh, talk about Airbnb, is that right? Yeah, well, I've been checking a couple websites, and I'm trying to book a, a cabin for this summer to rent, but I'm a little bit nervous reading reviews on uh, getting miscellaneous charges, and the cabin owner just end up canceling some trips, and then you're you're kind of uh, out of a place to stay. So with Airbnb, all fees should be fully disclosed when you book. It is possible that, and it does happen, that an owner of a property will renege and leave you high and dry. And when, when an Airbnb owner does it, do they get trashed on the posts that people put up? Because an Airbnb landlord lives by reputation. So if you're looking at a place and the landlord has stiffed other people, then skip that place. Even if it looks like a great place, I wouldn't stay there if other people have been burned. I mean, that's the whole purpose of them putting up their reviews. Okay. And is there, a, is there a website that you recommend, one or the other? Because I've been looking at Airbnb as well as uh, like HomeAway, okay, VRBO. Okay, so HomeAway, VRBO, that's a common owner for those two. If you use HomeAway, VRBO, make sure you use the payment system through the HomeAway payment system. Don't send somebody a check. Don't give somebody a credit card. Use the payment verification system through HomeAway. Because that protects your money. You know, the beauty of Airbnb is how the money is protected, that when you pay it, you don't have to worry that someone will abscond with it. Okay. Is that the same with HomeAway, that uh, you're protected from that standpoint? If you use the HomeAway payment system instead of paying the landlord direct. Okay. Do you have to pay everything up front, or is it uh, a deposit? And then- it depends on the property owner. The property owner can set the guidelines for what their policy is on cancellation. Many of them will say strict, which means second you book, you're pretty much out of luck. They can set when deposit is due, when final payment is due, if there are refunds, to what date a refund is allowed. So each property owner is given the latitude with both systems the HomeAway VRBO, and the Airbnb to set the rules as they wish. I am so into the idea of reducing the number of fatalities and injuries on our roads with technology. And technology has caused the massive uptick in the number of accidents on the roads, the injuries and fatalities, as people are obsessed and addicted to their smartphones. But technology that makes cars smarter is going to counteract that if somebody doesn't get into the way, which is what today's Clark Rageous Moment is about. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous Moment. There are so many companies racing to bring technology to bear to make driving much safer. Cars being autonomous, semi-autonomous, preventing accidents before they happen. And most of the breakthroughs are coming from Silicon Valley companies. Think people like Google. It has a subsidiary they spun off called Waymo that is having tremendous breakthroughs in automation. 
And the people from Uber are doing great things testing automated vehicles in Pittsburgh is one location. Well, now as states pass laws to deal with autonomous driving, Wall Street Journal reports that General Motors is on a full court press to get states to outlaw any life-saving technologies being tested or introduced by any companies that are not the automakers. Now think about that. GM, if these allegations are correct, is trying to get laws passed that would outlaw you being safer on the road. Now this is the same General Motors that you and I, without being asked, spent untold billions of dollars to bail out so they could keep operating, and now they want to thank us by putting us in more harm on the road? Shame on you, GM. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports this podcast. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust, someone who's got your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in just minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure that you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank. Skip the waiting. Go completely online at quickenloans.com slash save. That's quickenloans.com slash S-A-V-E. Let Rocket Mortgage help you get the exact mortgage solution that you need. Go to quickenloans.com slash save. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our web address. You want to follow me? Facebook.com slash Clark Howard. You want to ask me something? Clark.com slash ask. This question for you. Would you want to fly into space? For me, the answer is no way. Those men and women who get strapped into those spaceships and fly up to the International Space Station, people in the past who uh, flew to the moon, who have flown into space, they got so much more in guts than I do, and it's just not my thing. Not going to do it. I've asked my wife, who is fascinated with space, if she wants to be a space tourist. And, you know, for a while there was a lot of talk about having a spaceship that was going to fly to um, the outer atmosphere from New Mexico, and you could buy a flight up to, I think, 65 miles up into the atmosphere, and it was a quarter million dollars. I don't know what ever happened with that, but it seems to have gone into quiet that nothing's happening. But I asked my wife, is this something you want to do in your lifetime? She said, no. But there are other people that the idea of flying into space is an intense dream. 
four very wealthy people, three of them Americans, one Brit- British, had paid the Russians $20 million to go into space. And those are people who've actually flown. They went up to the International Space Station as tourists. And I guess all four of them are back now. They didn't go together. But, wow, $20 million to go into space. Now Elon Musk has announced that as soon as next year, and any announcement from Elon Musk that involves a date attached to it, he always is late with everything. If he was running an airline, you'd always be months late to your destination. But he now says he's going to fly space tourists to the moon and that it's going to be in a fully autonomous vehicle. No astronaut on board. That it will be 100% computer-controlled And so these tourists will be strapped into this thing, and he's not said how much it'll cost to do it, and they'll be able to fly up to the moon, circle the moon, they will not land on the moon, and then the robotic spaceship will fly them back to Earth. I just can't imagine doing that and taking, think about how much money somebody would have to have to do that and saying, I want to be strapped into this thing that I could very well die in. And I want to fly to the moon. Are you ready, Kim? Are you going to do it? I might be, but I wanted to change the question on you. Would you do it if it was free? No. (laughs) I wouldn't do it if Elon Musk paid me $20 million. (laughs) I think I would. You'd do it for free? No, I'd do it if he paid me $20 million. No, I would not. I would not. Money isn't everything. At the same time, the people that do this kind of stuff are making it possible for us in the future to make space travel routine. We've kind of fallen by the wayside with that in the United States. You know, we ran out of gas with the space shuttle and the missions that it did, the bravery of the people involved with that, the two missions that ended with sad loss of life. And the people that do that kind of pioneering stuff make great things potentially possible for us in the future. And that kind of stuff will become common and routine to fly into space. But it's not going to become common and routine with me being part of it. Joel, you haven't said a word. I'd do it for free, for sure. Would, if you could afford to, would you pay $20 million to go into space? I didn't ask you that either. I don't know. I'm not one of those people that it, it's a dream of mine or anything like that. But if if it was uh, an opportunity to go do something like that, it's a, I mean, it's a priceless thing to partake in. I would I would really consider it. So I just did indoor skydiving recently. We did that as a family activity. Have either of you done that? No. That's a thing that's popping up all around the country. And I bought the vouchers at Costco. They were forty eight dollars. And you can't get hurt in the thing. It's not like jumping out of an airplane. And uh, I don't know that I ever have any desire to do that again, but it was fun doing it. And so it was some facsimile, apparently, of the experience without uh, having to jump out at 14,000 feet. (laughs) 
I have never done the indoor skydiving, but I have been uh, paragliding outside in Switzerland where you basically just run off a mountain and then you're floating very softly to the bottom eventually. And? Oh, it was one of the best experiences of my life. Amazing. Well, both of you, you have fun with all these experiences. I'm not doing it. I don't know. I think real skydiving would be too far for me, though. So, Ron, as we're talking about adventures to space and beyond, would you, if you were offered by Elon Musk a free ride to Mar- to the moon, would you take it? Ron? Hello? Yes. Would you no, take would a free, Would you take a free ride from Elon Musk to the moon? No, I would not. You don't have any interest in being strapped into a spaceship? Well, I'm an engineer by training, and so I'd rather not. How about uh, how about uh, jumping out of an airplane, skydiving? That might be fun as long as I was strapped to somebody. <laughs> You're going to do that tandem thing, huh? Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> I uh, I I like being here on Earth or in a jet with a very experienced you know crew of pilots. But jumping out of a plane that's up in the sky, that's not my thing. And flying to space, that's not my thing either. So, Ryan, speaking of risk, you want to talk about risk in your life. Yes, I, I have a question. Uh, I have an umbrella insurance policy that goes after my home and auto insurance. Since my net worth has increased over the years, should I increase the amount of the umbrella policy? Absolutely. Uh, are there... Okay. And Are so, there any rules that you have? I, there is a there's a general back of the envelope rule that I don't know if it has any real uh, mathematical truth to it, but it's the generally accepted practice that as your wealth rises, you raise the amount of your liability umbrella insurance policy by an equal amount. So, like if you've started off with a standard million dollar policy. And now your worth, net worth is more than a million dollars, you would want a $2 million policy. If you have the success that now you're worth more than $2 million, you would want a $3 million policy. And on like that, that the idea that what you're trying to create safe harbor for is your net worth. Now, the flaw that has been pointed out to me before in a Clark Stinks post, you know, that's where someone can go on Clark.com and tell me where. I'm not thinking clearly or just wrong, is that if somebody is suing you, they're suing you for whatever they can convince a court their losses are. But generally, lawyers that are defending somebody are going after the low-hanging fruit. So you have this much liability shield, that's what they're going after. Okay. What about if you have a professional degree? Is that Should that be a concern? So... When you have an issue where you may well be found liable after, let's say, an auto accident or somebody gets injured at your home or whatever the circumstance would be that you become a target of a lawyer, a lawyer checks your background. They want to see your profession. They want to see what um, what you likely earn, education level, and that helps them size you up for what kind of level of of money they think they can extract from you or your insurance company so that is a factor but 
because you said you're an engineer by training, you're not in the kind of profession that is the one that the lawyers especially get excited about, which would be someone who in some way is a public figure. That's who they really get excited about um, going after for big money. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, I uh, God has been good, and I've been able to increase my net worth, so it's about time that I increase my umbrella policy. The good news is that as you raise your umbrella, and, the, and an umbrella policy, all it means is it's excess liability that goes beyond what your own automobile or homeowner's insurance covers, and it's sold in increments of a million, is that each additional million is cheaper than the million before it, and these policies are extremely inexpensive per year because the risk attached to this is so extremely low. Mo is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Mo. Yeah, hello, Clark. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Certainly. I have an, yeah, thanks. I have an index universal life insurance account through uh, Transamerica, and um, I was using that as an overall strategy for retirement to diversify my retirement. I have a 401k currently putting in about 6%, and I was going to put the difference into that IUL account. Just wanted to get your thoughts and feedback on, on that approach. I hate index universal life. I hate universal life policies of any form or flavor. They have extremely high expenses. And it's not just that you bought it from Transamerica, buying one from any company. They have extremely high expenses. And the illustration you were given when you bought it is only a guess, and usually a very optimistic one, of what will happen with that policy. The danger often with these uh, index universal life policies is that they will not perform as expected and you will get hit in the future with capital calls where if you don't write a big check to keep the policy afloat you end up with the policy basically exploding on you and you can get hit with tax liability at that time so i can't stand them that's that's good to know um, I'm two years in, so I'm thinking about stopping that and then maybe just moving those retirement funds to a 401k or maybe just uh, another... Oh, you're uh, not index. maxing out your 401k or a Roth? No, I have uh, two small kids, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. Okay, so let me tell you where this fits in with this conversation. So even if someone, an insurance salesperson, could make a good argument for why you should have these things that I hate, any version of a universal life policy, they always are a lower priority than your 401k or a Roth IRA because those two things have built-in tremendous tax advantages. And in the case of a Roth, a Roth is tax-free where any form of universal life is only tax-advantaged. Tax-free beats tax-advantaged seven days of the week. Absolutely. So a Roth is a much better idea for money that you're putting aside. And if you're worried about your kids and their financial security, that's best met with a simple level-term insurance policy that costs Mm -hmm. almost nothing to have. Right. Okay. So I'd love it if you would go look, Mo, at 
both of my guides at Clark.com that would be of use to you here. One would be how the right way is to buy a level term insurance policy. And the second is my investment guide that will walk you through how to set up that Roth account. And that Roth that you would set up with one of the low-cost providers I have there should have expenses typically 120th or 125th of what you pay for a universal life policy. That's uh, that's great advice. That universal life, they're pulling $70 uh, a month out of my, my payment. That was pretty high. I was shocked to see that. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, and it is a product that I don't know who the appropriate customer is for a universal life policy. And again, this has nothing to do with Transamerica. I would say that about any insurance company for any version or form of a universal life policy. Jim joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jim. How are you doing? Very well, Clark, and it's nice to talk to you. I listen to you a lot, and I know that I'm going to get some good information when I call you. Well, let's hope I can deliver. You are an active stock trader? Um, let's just say a rookie stock trader, but uh, I try to, um, I guess, you know, I'm 61 years old, so at this point, I started eight in retirement uh, planning, and so I'm kind of worried that I don't have time to gain what I need to, and I may be losing out on on the time benefit for retirement. So I, I look at maybe trading stocks and... Uh, finding out that the one that I currently have is charging around $10 a trade and that, that may have been around. that may have been what they were charging yesterday but uh-huh. there's an all out commission war underway and okay. Fidelity Investments for example lowered commissions this morning to I think 495 Charles Schwab cut rates last week to 695 there's Robinhood that charges no trading fees. Really? Yeah. So the cost of commissions for stock trades are coming down, down, down. And if you choose to trade ETFs, which would give you broad portfolios, mm-hmm. um, many all the big players offer ETFs that you can uh, trade commission-free. Oh, really? I did not know that. But if you are really in a catch-up game on retirement savings at 61, I am Uh so much more a fan of you looking at broad-based investing like target retirement funds where you just slap money in there as much as you can afford to and you're instantly diversified. Okay. But if that's Um, not your thing and you want to do individual trading – know that that commissions are very likely from the low-cost providers going to no cost. And even if you go to one that's charging four ninety five dollars a trade or whatever, they will probably, if you bring enough business to them, turn around and give you a lot of zero-cost trades. But if you want to do zero-cost right from the get-go, again, go look at Robinhood on your smartphone. You know, if you're looking to buy paper towels or a can of beans, knowing what other people paid for them isn't really that important. Paper towels, it's beans. 
But for a big purchase, like a car, that kind of information isn't just helpful, it's essential. Well, with TrueCar, you can do just that. You see, TrueCar lets you see what other people in your area paid for the car that you're looking to buy, which will help you determine a fair price. And the best part? You can work directly with a TrueCar certified dealer to establish a fair price before you even show up on the lot. Yeah, that's right. TrueCar certified dealers have all the same information you do and are just there to help you get the car you want while offering you a faster, easier buying experience. Who doesn't want that? And knowing what others have paid has helped TrueCar users save an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. So when you're ready to buy that car, there's only one place to go. Visit TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. You can get it at TrueCar.com or the super easy to use TrueCar app. Some features not available in all states. Entrepreneurial act opportunities are appearing everywhere. I'm going to talk about one in just 30 minutes. I want to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so that you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our web address. Clarkdeals.com is our bargain site. Go there to find deals that we believe will not waste your time. We curate and try to determine that when we post something there, that it really is a deal. And when you have a question for me, clark.com slash ask. So the American Customer Satisfaction Index, which was spun out of the University of Michigan, is just about the most respected database there is on the caliber and quality of service and customer service you get from different industries and different companies. And they have just published their newest data on stores that you and I may frequent or stores that exist that you and I, for whatever reason, don't go to. And when they checked out retail stores, as far as customer satisfaction, two tied is the best in the country. They are the department store chain Dillard's and the wholesale club Costco Wholesale. As far as others that did well, one is surprising to me because the company's having a difficult time closing a bunch of stores. Right behind Dillard's and Costco, J.C. Penney got a great score. Others of note, Dollar Tree near the top of the heap in terms of customer satisfaction, where everything's a dollar. Now, I'm a frequent Dollar Tree shopper. I wouldn't think of them as being tied with Nordstrom, which they are in the customer satisfaction index, near the top of the list for customer satisfaction, but that's where Dollar Tree resides in a dead heat with Nordstrom. So they're each for completely different customers giving people an experience that they're happy with. How about when you go to those incredibly overpriced chain drug stores? They all get the lowest scores for customer satisfaction. CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid all get terrible scores for customer satisfaction. 
And I don't know if that's because they're so expensive or what the reason is that they get such bad scores. But the good news for them, their bad scores have improved and are higher than they've been in prior years, but still the lowest scores. And when you look at online shopping, there's basically Amazon and everybody else. Amazon gets a sky-high 86. Now, there's one other company that I'll talk about in a second that got an 86, which is in the Customer Satisfaction Index. That is a tremendously high score. And other online retailers that did well, Newegg, and then the all others category, which means smaller internet players, internet sellers that are not necessarily household brands, do a very good job overall in serving you. And that's good news because it means that the small guys are delivering a good experience that gives them a reason to exist, a reason to be. Now, who else, though, did as high as Amazon? Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's, again this year, got a phenomenal score in customer satisfaction and dethroned last year's champion, which was Wegmans. Along with Trader Joe's, right behind them, actually, was Publix, the regional supermarket chain based in Florida but has stores in the, uh, I guess, just southeast United States, maybe little further afield but Publix is a, a fantastic experience and right there with them Aldi now the interesting thing about Trader Joe's being number one Aldi being number three they have common ownership the same German family that owns Trader Joe's also owns Aldi and they have the customer service thing right What difference does all this stuff make or mean? The companies, you and I work hard for our money. The companies that treat us the best, that give us the best customer experience, they're the ones that over time will generally thrive, not always, but generally, and they're getting the mix right of how they treat us, what prices they charge us, the overall experience we have. And so when we take our hard-earned money, you want to spend it where it will, in fact, be rewarded. I wanted to share something with you, though. The overall from the American Customer Satisfaction Index that rates different industries, I think it's roughly every 60 days on an annual basis, they roll out different industries in their database. And one thing that's been consistent is that the two lowest-rated industries in the country, and they're not close to anybody else, are Internet service providers and pay TV. And what do those two industries suffer from? A lack of competition. The industries that tend to come in at the top of the heap are in categories where they face extreme competition. The others that come in towards the bottom 
government-provided utilities, but still came in meaningfully higher than pay TV or internet service providers, then right there with the uh, government-provided utilities, monopoly phone companies. And so industries that do not face any meaningful amount of competition generally make the customer not happy, either because people are frustrated by the lack of choice or because the lack of choice removes a sense of urgency from a monopoly or a near monopoly of providing better service. Mike is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Mike. Hey, Clark Howard. It's a great pleasure to speak with you. Well, great to have you here, and I'm excited you're going to go to Costa Rica. Yeah, it's on my bucket list. I'm really, really excited, and my boss is awesome and gave me 10 days off, so I'm Costa Rica bound. You are going to love it. Are you a surfer? I am not a surfer, but I'm just an avid outdoorsman and hiker. Oh, you're going to have a lot of that in Costa Rica. You're going to you're going to be surprised at the diversity of the topography through such a small country. Yeah, my head is spinning with all the research I've been doing. Well, how can I be of service with this upcoming adventure? So, Clark, I've been um, poking around for rental car prices on the internet down there in Costa Rica. Oh boy! I found one found one website that had a ridiculously low price of a dollar fifty a day. Oh yeah! And I thought uh, that's probably too good to be true. Since most of the others are in the mid teens. Okay, so Costa Rica comes with an unpleasant surprise when you rent a car. Okay. The government there. It's one of the few countries on earth that the government makes you buy a whole bunch of pseudo-semi-fake, crummy insurance-type products with your rental. So when you see a car rental company for Costa Rica listing a rate at a dollar a day or $5 a day or whatever, they're just trying to lure you in. And then for the government-mandated semi-insurance things, they charge you a fortune. So it's a loss leader. And what I've recommended in the past with Costa Rica is rent from a well-known and recognized company. But before you even do that, you want disclosure from them, which they will have on their website, what the mandatory uh, semi-insurances are going to cost you. Okay. So expect the car rental in Costa Rica to be actually a fair amount more money than you have anticipated. In mid-teens, closer to accurate? No, it'll be more than that with all the junk they make you get. Okay. But again, there's a big range on the junk fees. Um, Like one company may be two or three times the cost of another for the stuff that the Costa Rican government requires you have. You know, normally when I travel somewhere, I anywhere in the world, I refuse all the pseudo-insurance that the car rental company tries to get me to get because of the coverage I have of my own auto insurance, even outside the United States. And then right. I have a credit card that covers the gaps in what my uh, auto insurance doesn't cover. None of those rules apply in Costa Rica. Interesting. 
So it, I tell you, what I'd like you to do is go to like TripAdvisor and read the briefings about renting a car in Costa Rica or just Google uh, Costa Rican car rental and you'll see the okay. posts people have put up about all the stuff that comes out of your wallet for a Costa Rican rental. Okay. What uh, What is the price range I should be thinking is, is close? I would guess all in, at the low end, you'll be paying 35 a day for a car. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a bunch, huh? Yeah, that's completely different than a dollar a day, isn't it? It's just a little bit. <laughs> and I must congratulate you, Mike, because you you smelled a rat. And you wanted to yeah. check that out because you knew that they weren't going to rent you a car for a dollar a day. But yeah. then they've got you there standing in front of the counter and your dollar a day becomes who knows what with all the junk fees they add on. And what are you going to do at that point? So knowing in advance and knowing what it's going to cost, that's the right thing. Pete is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Pete. Hey, Clark. How are you tonight? I'm great, thanks. I hope everything's wonderful in your life. Oh, yeah. Today's uh, Mardi Gras here in uh, New Orleans, so there's a lot of festivities going on. How do you have time to talk to me instead of being out partying? (laughs) Oh, I've had uh, many years to do that. I've lived here all my life, so uh, I chose to stay home today. All right. Well, let's hope everybody stays safe down there. Thank you, Claude. Uh, my question revolves around um, the um, uh, debit cards that are issued. Uh, well, in my case, it's through my credit union, and it has the um, Visa logo on it. And you often refer to them as trash visas. Yeah, I call them the piece of trash fake visa. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just wondered what would be a case in which you would it would be okay to use it and not have to worry about it. Well, there, there is no such thing because the protections you're afforded with a piece of trash fake visa or fake MasterCard, which is a Visa or MasterCard debit card that attacks your checking account, or the credit union, your equivalent, the share draft account. The problem is, is that federal law does not give you the same protections. So as an example, if the, the one place you never want to use a debit card is buying anything online or anything you're going to get later. Because if they don't deliver it, your bank, or in your case, your credit union says, that's just too bad, Pete, because, you know, that was like a check you wrote and it doesn't matter they didn't deliver it you're out your money where with a credit card you're protected for failure to deliver goods or services in the event that somebody compromises your number or your card with a credit card generally your liability is zero but in any circumstance is maxed at fifty dollars with a debit card your liability under federal law is generally five hundred dollars minimum up to a maximum of every penny that's in your account. Now, a number of Visa and MasterCard issuers have said they are are following an administrative rule where your liability is capped at either zero or $50 for a debit card, 
but they don't have to do that. So the law is not there to protect you. You're depending on the kindness of the financial institution to do that. And then the other thing is if somebody steals your account number, you're in possession of your card, even if they steal your card, whatever, with a credit card, no money leaves your hands. You know, it's just a charge is posted. You tell them that's not your charge, and that's it after you do that paperwork. But with a um, with a debit card, the money disappears from your checking account, and then you have to fight with your credit union or your bank to get the money back. Other than that, they're great, which I didn't leave anything else for them to be great. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question at Clark.com. And producer Joel asks it. What you got? Clark Arney's got a question. He says, what is your opinion on purchasing a home warranty policy? My wife and I are retired and have concerns of having a major item like HVAC going out along with other expensive items. That is a common question and a great one. I despise the home warranties. They tend to cost you, depending on where in the country you are, five to $600 a year And then when something breaks, they make you jump through often a lot of hoops to get them to take action under the warranty, in some cases hoping they stall you out and you just go ahead and pay somebody on your own. Better to take the five or $600 each year and put it in a dedicated savings account that is a home maintenance fund than when the time comes that you need to do a significant repair or replacement at your home. You have built up that reserve of cash. Think about over 10 years, you built up five or six grand. So far in 2017, Forbes and Podcast One have already launched three highly acclaimed shows. The interview with Steve Bertoni features the business world's most interesting names, like Adam Carolla, Twitter founder Sean Rad, and Hollywood's own Jessica Alba. So I spent a lot of my childhood in the hospital and hospital bed. Under 30 with Steve Goldblum talks to the movers and shakers, like Nation Builder CEO Jim Gilliam and NFL big game winner Martellus Bennett. Guys are afraid to be themselves because of their marketing deal. And the list with Art of Charms, Jordan Harbinger. We'll get behind-the-scenes insight and information that doesn't make the print cut next up sports money with michael zanian talking to team owners athletes and industry leaders about the enterprise and money behind supreme athletic competition forbes on podcast one not just entertaining informative subscribe now at itunes and don't forget to rate review and share stay tuned for 60 seconds of ap news headlines right after this podcast Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our web address. You have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. And I'm going to throw some stats at you you may not be aware of. In television, there used to be approximately 80 television series being Uh, produced at any one time today because of the proliferation of cable channels there are roughly 400 the audience sizes are getting smaller for shows because there's so many more choices but there's also far more jobs available in television production with five times the number of active series in production And so that by itself is a positive development of more choice. But that is child's play compared to what's happening because of YouTube. 
YouTube is creating its own stars, and it's not YouTube doing it. It's you by what you choose to subscribe to and watch on YouTube. There are an amazing number of people now earning a living on YouTube. I know the talk about YouTube stars concentrates on the people that are making multi-millions a year with their own YouTube channels and the number of subscribers. My 11-year-old son subscribes to these people who, uh, it's a married couple, Pat and Jen, who live in Jacksonville, Florida, and they have, I think it's, my son told me, I think 12 million subscribers watching him do these personality videos about Minecraft. You know what Minecraft is? It's a game that every 8 to 12-year-old boy in the world wants to play, apparently. Anyway, this couple had become like a phenomena with these boys, these preteen boys who want to know everything that's going on in their lives. And my son will make me watch these videos. And let me tell you, I am not in the demographic for wanting to watch this. But what's so amazing with YouTube is that, and most people aren't going to have huge followings, but it has democratized the access to you being someone who puts out video content. And I saw a stat in the Wall Street Journal that YouTube now has one billion hours of video a day being consumed and is soon going to have more minutes or hours watched overall than in the entirety of television. And so... The thing that's so neat today is that the ability for you to have your own thing, whatever that is, is so available now because we've moved out of an era in so many things that we might be interested in. And I'm just giving you one example with YouTube and somebody's ability to launch their own business. There are so many things like that available today that you're not dependent on the man saying, yes, you can have a job. When I say the man, that's an expression, could be a woman, but whatever. The idea is when you see an opportunity, don't wait for somebody to green light that, yes, they are going to give you an opportunity. You seize your own opportunity. You know, America's success overall and the wealth generation we've had in this country is because of people who had the guts to go out and start their own thing. And now the ability in so many areas to start your own thing is great. My son was talking to me, you know, he's now all inspired by Pat and Jen and the other people he follows on YouTube that he wants to have a vlogging camera. 11 years old. 
He's come up with the name for his channel on YouTube, and he wants to start being a vlogger. And some more power to him. I don't know what he's going to talk about, but if that's what he wants to do, fine. But the point is, an 11-year-old kid doesn't psych himself out about why he can't do something. It seems when we get to be adults, we start naysaying ourselves and telling ourselves why we can't do something. Forget the can'ts and follow your dream. By the way, what's going to happen to television if everybody's just watching YouTube? Tyler's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Tyler. Hey, Clark. Thank you so much for having me on. Sure, Tyler. You have an intriguing question for me. I can't wait to hear where this is going to go. You want to retire well, crazy so early? That's that's the goal. You were just talking about uh, don't let people say you can't do something, so I thought I'd throw it out there as a potential option. So uh, I'm asking you for sort of two kind of different questions. Question one is a sanity check. Is this even possible? And question two is um, about a, a popular study that's been done. But the general idea is my plan is to spend significantly less than I make and just invest the difference in between what I make and what I spend in just low-cost index funds um, and save up enough until I eventually can hit a point where I think the rule of thumb they use is 4% um, as a safe withdrawal rate from that big pile of money you have uh, and eventually use that to just pay for your living expenses. Wow. Okay, so first of all, max savers, mega savers, whichever term you use, are generally able to retire at some point in their 40s. So if you're saving like a maniac and you want to bag work, and it's not really necessarily about bagging work, it's about giving yourself complete freedom to do whatever you want for the rest of your life. If you live on substantially less than what you make, it means that you are living a low-cost lifestyle which is a big part of the money you generate being able to stretch over the remaining years of your lifetime. Does uh, sometime in your 40s, does that sound too far off, or is that kind of where you were thinking? I mean, I was sort of going off the principle that as soon as I have like 30 times my annual spend saved, that I should be in a position where I can live off the interest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Does that seem feasible? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of arguing back and forth about the 3% rule and the 4% rule. For people who aren't familiar with that, the idea um, makes most people need antacid, but it should be generic. When Mm. they think about how large a pile of money you have to have to know you're never going to run out of money if you can only spend 3 or 4% of it each year. But as... A practical matter, it would it would have to involve a very very bad set of circumstances for you living at a three or four percent withdrawal rate of what you have left each year to ever run out of money. So once you get to that point where you have 
30 times your annual spend, that would be absolutely, with near certainty, near 100% certainty, like 99%, that you would be A-OK for the rest of your life financially. Okay, perfect. Well, and that, by uh, the way, that definitely have, answers both questions. Have you ever looked at Mr. Money Mustache? I I have. He's been one of my inspirations. There's a, a whole gaggle of those uh, early retirement people, and uh, you never know when you read something online if it is uh, just someone who's making a bunch of money off of a blog and pitching an idea, or if it is uh, a legitimate thing that's been backed up through historical data. No, the people who really retire early and want to talk about it want to spread the word to other people they don't have a hidden agenda their their system their ideas may not fit you which is why it's great there are so many different people who give guidance to people who want to do something extreme like ultra early retirement but no i don't know anybody who's blogging in that area who's a dirtbag who's who's being dishonest or anything like that they really do want others to have the freedom that they enjoy and best to you with that freedom that's coming your way tom is with us on the clark howard show hi tom hi thanks for having me on your program certainly tom how can i serve you Over the years, a few of the companies I've done business with have experienced data breach and as a result provided me with a year or two's free identity protection. Most recently, a big box store has provided me with a year's subscription, but this time they're requesting, the service is requesting that I load in my credit account, uh, credit card numbers and my bank account numbers. None of the other services ever requested this, so I was hoping that you'd give me your opinion. I wouldn't do it. Whether this was prudent, would not do it. That seems unusually risky, and I would not consider that service, even if it's free. Okay. And okay. I would, I would feel if you want to monitor your credit, I would feel really comfortable and confident doing the free credit monitoring that's available from Credit Karma. I don't know if you've heard yeah. of them, but they have a, a I, free credit monitor. I have, I have heard of them. My son uses uh, Credit Karma, and I just use the annual credit reports uh, for my wife and I. So every three months, I run one of the three credit bureaus for a different one for my wife and I. That's a great um, but, idea. And I would say in addition to that, follow your son to Credit Karma because you want the earlier warning that would come from them. And do you and your wife know about credit freeze? Yes. Yes, I've heard you talk about it several times. So if you have been one of the people who's been identified as somebody whose information has been breached to the point that they're willing to give you free monitoring... I would consider after you've set up your registration at Credit Karma, because you've got to do it in the right order, consider freezing your credit also. Okay, that's great. I will uh, take you up on your advice. And again, thanks uh, for your help, and thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Have a great day. You know, I should mention with Credit Freeze, if you have been a victim of identity theft, direct identity theft, 
In most states, it means credit freeze is free. But if you've only been notified that your information was in one of those big data breaches, in most states, that doesn't qualify and you would have to pay for credit freeze. Stefan is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Stefan. How are you? Hey, Clark. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. You're thinking of refinancing your home loan. Tell me about that. Yeah, I just bought a home um, and I uh, through, uh, from a family member. So it may be a little bit um, less. Uh, I may have purchased it on a better deal than what the market says. So I was hoping to refi um, and pay off some credit card debt. Hmm. Well, tell me about the loan you did get. Was the loan made to you by a family member as well, or did you do a conventional loan on a, on a family sale? No, I did. The family member owns the, the mortgage, and I pay them uh, 2% over 17 years. 2% interest? Yeah. They gave you a 2% fixed rate? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I you have a wonderful equity. family. <laughs> yes, they're very generous. We put a lot of sweat equity into the deal, and, uh, uh, and uh, when they wanted to sell, we were able to purchase the property. Wow. So I can't imagine a circumstance where I'm going to think it's a good idea for you to give up that 2% mortgage in return for being able to attack credit card debt. Um, Because that 2% is such a deal. I mean, you think about even in the best of circumstances, you're probably going to be paying somewhere in the fours. So you double your effective interest rate plus you'd have many, many thousands of dollars in closing costs to redo the loan. Are the credit cards at a point where you're, like, desperate going into default, or what is the status of the credit card debt? No, I'm not not desperate or going into default. It's just uh, their uh, usage is quite high. Um, So I was thinking of maybe opening up another credit card or reducing the savings I put away for retirement. I save about 20% of my paycheck, and I'm wondering if that's maybe too much at this point if I'm trying to uh, pay down those uh, credit cards. That is wonderful that you're saving 20% of your pay. Most people are saving somewhere about, oh, if they're saving, they're saving about 4% of their pay. So I would be very comfortable with you for the period of time it takes to attack the credit cards, reducing the percent of your pay you're saving for retirement down to 10%. Okay. Because 10% would still be, you know, a dime of every dollar would be great. And use that other 10% to go towards paying down the credit card debt. If you can discipline yourself to take what would be the larger net check and use it directly towards the credit cards, that would be a much better thing than the idea of refining such a sweetheart mortgage deal that you have. That sounds that sounds like a plan. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, do that. And don't take out another credit card because if you've been charging them up a lot, it, mm-hmm. when when you've had a situation like that, odds are that if you get another card, it'll be too easy to start charging up on it. Okay. Do you carry but, the cards uh, yeah. anymore? I still have the cards. I, I basically only uh, use them for emergencies, but if I can cut down my uh, 
savings from my paycheck, then I can build up the uh, savings and then uh, stop using the credit cards. Well, that would be great. And uh, congratulations to you on everything going on with your life. Even though you have this credit card debt, the fact that you've been saving 20% of your pay and you have this 2% mortgage, that's all great, great stuff. Thanks for listening to the Clark Howard Podcast. Download new episodes every Monday through Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. Hello there, you. It's me, Jay Moore. You know me from the More Stories Podcast. I'm a comedian, I'm an actor, and I talk to people that fascinate me, like Brandon Boyd from Incubus, super funny Jim Jeffries, Jay Leno, Charlie Sheen, Lakers owner Jeannie Buss, and a whole lot more. Download a few episodes of More Stories now. More Stories Podcast every Monday. Podcast One app, iTunes, podcastone.com. What we're learning about the Manchester bomber. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. The father of the alleged Manchester suicide bomber says his son didn't do it. We don't believe in killing innocents, he told the AP. But the father reportedly was a member of an al-Qaeda-backed group in Libya years ago. That, according to a former Libyan security official. Meanwhile, police have carried out raids on a block of apartments in Manchester. Witnesses say they heard explosions. Alan Kinsey was a neighbor of the alleged bomber. The actual family that had been there, I'd I'd never really come across them in bad ways it was always even when I said hello he never seemed to speak back to you he was just like kept themselves to themselves and that was about it the British putting more military troops on the streets now as police say it's clear this is a network they're investigating President Trump has arrived in Brussels for NATO meetings after a visit this morning with the Pope at the Vatican I'm Rita Foley